Well, listen, uh, you can pull your worship guides out. We're continuing a series. This is the third part in a series. We're, we're, we're in the uh, study on the Passion Week, uh, uh, Jesus' final week on earth. And we've been doing it over a month. So we're, we're doing a, a month study on the final week of Jesus' life. And we know from Scripture that uh, a lot of the New Testament, a lot of the Gospels in particular, are dedicated to this final week of Jesus' life. What's known as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, about a third of the text is dedicated to what we are studying right now. In the Gospel of John, uh, over half of that text is dedicated uh, to this final week. And in the first week, uh, we kind of unpacked uh, a story where Jesus goes to church and he goes to temple and he tries to get us to see the importance of staying on fire for God, but also for his house. Amen? Because there's a tendency for us to lose the fire. And we need to stay on fire. We need to stay. We can have a hard time staying on fire from God, on fire for God. Just a couple weeks ago, we can lose the fire that quickly. And so God was reminding us how to keep our zeal and stay fervent in our devotion for God. Amen. And then last week we talked about uh, a friend that Jesus wanted to introduce to us, a silent partner. Uh, Jesus was coming to earth on a mission impossible uh, to rescue humanity from its ultimate destruction. And time was running out, and so he had a lot he had to unpack in a short period of time. But he knew that he was going to go eventually, and he was going to have to kind of uh, displace some of this weight and, and help us be able to handle uh, the cursed world that we live in now. And so he introduced us to a silent partner, and his name is the Holy Spirit. Amen. He's the comforter. He's the counselor, sometimes known as the advocate, sometimes uh, the helper, things like that. And we just talked about that and unpacked the person that basically order to that relationship is critical to the success with the relationship. That first we need to meet the person, understand he is a person, he's a him, he's God, he's not weird. Uh, it's a person. And then second, he has a role and a function. And that role to come alongside you, he unpacks in John 14 through 16. And then on top of that, he has power to help us. And one of the primary reasons that he gives us power, listen to this everybody, is to be bold. Can I have a better amen from this service? Can I have a better amen from Framingham? I hope you guys can out yell them here because I want to hear you out there. But basically, God has called you uh, to be bold, but you need the Holy Spirit to be bold. And so we really took an opportunity last week to kind of invite the Holy Spirit and relationship with him into our life. Amen? Well, today I'm going to talk to you about uh, what's known as the Last Supper. And, uh, and if, if you were to have, you know, it's funny, people always talk about, sometimes you see it in movies, you know, uh, what would you want to have for your final meal? What would you want to have for your last meal? I put that out online last night. It was interesting seeing some of the, uh, the feedback from some of y'all on what your final meal would be. And some people are like, that's easy, you know, steak and shrimp. And other people are like, somebody went all spiritual on me real late in the game and said, I'd give my final meal away. And uh, <laughs> I was like, come on. Come on. I was like thinking Entenmann's Danish raspberry, you know, and I hadn't had a snicker bar in like 25 years. I was, those are the kind of things that came to mind, amen? But uh, we're going to talk about that. Um, one of the things, there's a question that I heard Pastor Craig Rochelle kind of pose out there, and he said, why did Jesus come? And, and there are different reasons I think we, we know from Scripture that he came. Uh, we know he came to destroy the works of the evil one, the Bible says. And in 1 John, I think it's 3, verse 8. And we know that he came to give us life and life to the full. We know he came for sinners and, 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 and not so much the righteous. And we know he came to serve and, and not be served. We know why he came. But sometimes we don't know uh, how he came. 
And so this, this kind of different question, it made me think, it was pretty interesting. How did he come? And I want to show you something. It's not in your notes, but kind of a bonus text. But basically, can somebody fix this for me? Like this little thing, I don't know, like get it to a techie. That's great. Because I don't know if the TV's working yet or not, but whenever it does, let me know. But um, basically... Um, he, how he came comes from a text from Luke chapter 7. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Luke 7, 34. Listen to this. It says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Everybody, let's say that together. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Let's say it again. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. In fact, uh, he did this so much that the religious people accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton. And so some people are in church today, and they're like, I never knew I had so much in common with Jesus. <laughs> That's funny. I don't care what you guys say. I, I, I'm anticipating better laughs in framing him right now. But anyway, <laughs> I open with this for a couple of reasons. One, we're going to talk about how Jesus broke bread with his disciples. And it was one of the most intimate moments, uh, you know, really in humanity, uh, we're also going to talk about the, really the importance of, in this experience, being together. Uh, this, this connection between you and God and you and God's people. In fact, when, if you look at the New Testament, whenever there was, there's a lot of these special meals that are discussed. I actually did a class in, in seminary years ago studying the different meals of the New Testament and their significance. But one of the things that I took away from uh, this study was that, that every meal was like an event. I mean, it was a, it was a big deal. They would, they would be eating and drinking for like hours and hours and hours. And you're like, yeah, that's great. But listen, they, they would invite people uh, that they did know, and they would also invite people that they didn't know. It's a little bit of what church is supposed to be like. We're supposed to have people that we do know, and we're supposed to have people that we don't know together. But in these meals, they looked at them with such significance. Um, there was a sense of, uh, it was like it had a divine element to it. Um, it, it could be, it could pre date the cross, even after the cross and after the resurrection, when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus, uh, they, they actually took Jesus into a home and they began to eat and drink together. Thank you, Pastor Mark. They began to eat and drink together, and um, while they're eating and drinking, the Bible says they recognized Jesus. It wasn't until he prayed and then began to eat and drink that they saw Jesus. So in other words, there's something special that happens when we break bread and we include God in the moment. Is everybody with me right now? And so I just think, you know, it's going to be that it was that way before. You know, in the Passover, it was that way with Jesus, with his disciples. It was clearly that way right after the resurrection. All, actually, the Bible says, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be that way in heaven. Really, this whole thing culminates with the big meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so I just want you to understand, it's so important that what we're going to do today where we break bread and we it's more than a ritual. It's about relationship. And every time that Jesus, you know, uh, we do this, we invite Jesus into this moment. It, it should be not familiar. It should be special. It should be significant. Amen. One day Jesus broke bread with his disciples. Again, the final week of his life. This time it was totally different, though. And actually it was so different, it marked... I think, humanity forever. Uh, the Last Supper where Jesus was with, really, his closest friends, kind of interesting. It was extremely intimate. 
And so what I want to do first is I want to unpack some things for you. I want, I want you to understand the Last Supper from kind of a scriptural, doctrinal point of view. And I want you to see how beneficial it is to you and the things that you should focus on when you participate. And then at the end of this, we're going we're gonna to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Won't that be good? And so we'll take the, the sacrament is what it's sometimes referred to. It's like a holy ordinance of the Christian church. We'll do that together. But first I want to answer some common questions. And I'm not going to assume that you know these things. Some of you this will feel a little teachy. But it's good for you. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, this is good for you. This is good for you. Okay? And so uh, the last supper, you know, my last meal until we meet again. That's what we're talking about today. But but communion is one of the ways that it's described, but there's different names for this experience. Some people, depending on your traditions, but, but more importantly, what Scripture uses. There's Scripture for the term, the Last Supper. Actually, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20, it uses that term, the Last Supper. Uh, there, another place, it's called communion. Uh, we'll unpack that word in a little bit, but that comes out of Corinthians as well. Uh, 10 verse 16, it's, it's used one time in the King James Version. And then the Eucharist, which is just a, a way to say that is giving thanks. So it's just a different word, Eucharist. Some of you, because of your traditions and backgrounds uh, from more uh, the traditional environment or maybe it's a Catholic environment, a Lutheran environment, things like that, you might have referred to it as the Eucharist, but it just means giving thanks. And there is multiple texts for that in Luke 22, 1 Corinthians 11, and the like. But today, I want to talk about this and not so much focus on the name of communion, but the work of communion. It's not so important, the name of it, as much as it is the work of communion. Now, I had a friend years ago who was in ministry with me, and he was also raised in ministry. And he was um, a part of a denomination, uh, the Assemblies of God. And is everybody with me right now? Okay, everybody tracking. Okay. And he was a young minister. He was under a certain leadership, kind of a, a rookie minister. And he, he was given an assignment that he wasn't ready for. He was asked to administer communion within the services of the church that he was in because the senior pastor was away. And it had to be done because it was known in um, Christendom as uh, Holy Communion Sunday. It was like World Communion Sunday. It was a big deal. I didn't even know that was a holiday or a special day, but it was apparently. And so his leader's out of town, and he's supposed to administer the elements. And so my friend had to do something he'd never done before. Administer a righteous act. Um, that's funny. Anyway, you guys missed that. But uh, again, he had never had this experience. Technically, at this moment, he was not ordained. And so within their tradition, he was not allowed to consecrate the elements publicly. He could, he could pass them out, but he couldn't consecrate. That means he couldn't bless them. It was critical within the tradition that they be blessed in his denominational tradition. So he didn't know what to do, so he calls uh, his pastor. His pastor doesn't answer. So then he has to call the superintendent. He calls the superintendent, and the superintendent basically says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Where are the elements? He says, they're in the back with the leaders. He says, go to the back where the leaders are, He's, and, and he says, call me. And then he goes, okay. He gets in the back where the elements are. Let's say they're over here, and he calls them up on the phone. He says, I'm here, I'm here, Pastor. What do I do? He says, put the phone over the elements, and then I'm going to bless them. He goes, okay, go ahead, Pastor. And then it sounds like a Charlie Brown movie, you know. And then he's, are you done? No. 
Okay, okay, they're blessed, Pastor, you know, and then he hangs up the phone. And the pastor tells him, it's okay, you can go forward, you can administer the elements. And my friend Paul thought to himself, what would have happened if I was, you know, if, if when he started to pray, if I kind of just like waved it, you know what I mean, out, and, you know, and started putting it over, you know, putting it over somebody else. What would have happened? It just was such a peculiar experience to him if they weren't blessed you know, directly, what would, <laughs> what would have happened? And then later on, as the kind of story unfolds, uh, he starts with the communion experience. And he has to kind of go over and They had some kind of a matzah thing, you know, like, you know, saltine cracker type thing mimics that. And Paul didn't have a lot of experience with this. And so as he's getting ready to... Um, you know, uh, pray what are known kind of as the, the words of institution, which is really when you begin to say, this is my body broken for you. And so he takes the body and he starts shoving crackers in his mouth. And as he's shoving crackers in his mouth, he underestimates how many crackers you should have in your mouth. <laughs> and so he's trying to talk and the crackers get stuck in his throat. And he starts to cry because he can't get him out. And some people think he's praying. And so they start praying for him. And other people think he needs to be resuscitated. <laughs> and he starts to gag. And, uh, uh, and he's starting to have these unholy sounds. Start coming out of him. He doesn't know what to do. And so to rescue him, he grabs the, the blood of Jesus. Ah. <laughs> uh. It was either going to be, you know, killed by the body of Christ or, you know, he's going to be saved. And so he grabs the blood of Jesus and once again, he was saved by the blood of Jesus. <laughs> Woo! Go down or be resurrected, okay? And so the only thing near him was the blood of Jesus and so he took that. It's a real story. Anyway, what's interesting about this it's not so much what he did wrong, but <clears throat> hold on while I clear my. <laughs> I got a thing for teeth. <clears throat> so anyway, um, it's this this whole experience made me think about who's allowed to administer communion, and who's able or consecrate, and who's able to serve communion. And so questions to be answered. And I hope you guys know this as you, uh, if you make connect your home. There are kind of two ways to look at this. Some people call it an open table and a closed table. So in terms of who can participate in this experience, we have what we call an open table, not a closed table. And basically an open table, or should I say a closed table, says you can't share communion in this moment with us because of certain denominational views or certain interpretations or beliefs. And if you, we believe in an open table... <clears throat> and so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to participate and commune with us in the Lord's Supper. But always, the scripture advises us, just remember, make sure that you don't take it unworthily. And that's not saying you don't have sin. That means don't take it kind of calloused or familiar or don't take it without first examining yourself to make sure that you're doing it with the respect and reverence uh, that this experience or this sacrament deserves. Amen? You shouldn't take it lightly. So it is an open table, but we want to take it with reverence and respect. Amen? Now, so that's some common kind of questions. Here's some controversy that has been within the church kind of for centuries, and I'll unpack some different views. You can look in your notes. I'm going to talk about four different views on communion. Is anybody enjoying this so far? Okay. 
So here's the first view. Uh, this would probably hit a lot of people in our church because a lot of people in our church come from a Catholic background. On a public survey, generally our church is about 60 to 70% from a Catholic background. So the view that you came from and maybe need to understand is the view on, on communion is what's called transubstantiation. It's a big word. You're all getting ready to go to seminary right now. Transubstantiation says that the bread and the wine become the body uh, and blood of Jesus Christ in the moment of uh, the sacrament. So when you take the sacrament, for example, Roman Catholics in particular believe this one. They believe, actually, if I was administering uh, the wafer to you or I was giving you uh, the blood or the juice, uh, they're believing that once blessed and the experience that they go through prior to that, it's consecrated, that there is actually a metaphysical change to that cracker and to that juice where it becomes, as you partake of it, the real body and the real blood of Jesus Christ. So this is a view called transubstantiation. And although the elements on the outside look like the same, they believe that on the inside they literally change to become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And their defense for this or their justification for this is taken from Luke 22 when Jesus says, this is my body. Now, we believe as Christ followers that, that Jesus knew what he was doing. He, and the listeners knew he was saying, this is a symbol of my body. But our friends, the Roman Catholics, basically say, no, no, no. He's saying it literally is the body of Christ. And that's why that sacrament is so uh, important to them and so uh, frequent to them. In other words, you need it. In, in some respects, they feel like you need it every day. <clears throat> and so that's one view. Now, here's another view. Luther, Martin Luther, for those of you who know, in the 15th century came and he said, no way, Jose. He, he, he pre presented a new view called consubstantiation. Consubstantiation, everybody say seminary, is here today. Okay. So what this means is, is that they believe the body and blood coexist with each other simultaneously. There's not a metaphysical change, but just like uh, you could take you know, a hot a coal, and you can heat it up, just like heat is in the coal or coexists with the coal. It's not a metaphysical change of the coal. It's just heated up. Similarly, when you take the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the, it coexists in that experience when you're partaking of communion and when it is consecrated. So they believe that the bread and wine uh, are very real, but they also believe that Christ is very real inside these things at the same time. Now, a third view is called the symbolic view. Today, uh, statistically, this is the most common uh, view of all of them, uh, a person that you don't have to, we don't have to get in today, but uh, this gentleman named Swingley, he was known as the people's priest. He promoted this view years ago. Uh, our Baptist friends adopted this viewpoint first, and they said that the Lord's Supper is primarily a memorial. You guys know what a memorial is? When you have a memorial service, you're simply remembering someone's life. You're celebrating what was. Uh, you're kind of uh, um, just taking you back so that you, you emphasize the positive memories. And so this is a memorial ceremony of Christ's finished work. Now, one time, just as a break from all this seminary teaching, one time I did a wedding, and, I was, and this became a philosophical posture for me with weddings after that. But I remember talking to a couple and saying they were a Christian couple that was going to have a lot of non-Christian or pre-believers, as I like to say, in the audience. And I said, you have 
uh, one shot to send a certain kind of message. In fact, um, uh, many of you have, that I've done, perform your weddings, this is a conversation that I've had. And I basically said to them, this can be, you know, your wedding can be more than a moment where you lick each other's faces and shove cake in your face. Or it, c- it can be more than uh, like a Christian dec- dec- uh, decoration or it can be a Christian declaration. You can send a certain message. And one of the ways to send a message would, would be to make communion a central theme of your wedding ceremony. Is everybody with me so far? And so they decided, many have since then because of my encouragement, that basically before you go to the, your, your own table, uh, as a sign of priority and putting God first in your life, let's go to the Lord's table. And it just submits the whole thing to Christ in what is your big day. We're saying, God, you're really the biggest thing in our big day. Isn't that cool? And so anyway, I can remember the first time I did this, and I, I was kind of an inexperienced rookie myself. And I remember um, the people saying, yeah, we want to do that. Yeah, we want to do that. And it came to the point in time when we, we really were getting ready to go for it. The ceremony was underway. It was about two minutes to kick off. And I realized that I had left the elements back at um, uh, another room. And I hadn't got them like on stage or on the platform, on the altar. And so I freaked out. I got two minutes. I run back to this room to see where the elements are. And I go back to find the, find the matzah and the crackers and the juice. And there are these kids woofing them down. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is bad. And so I immediately go into panic mode, and I'm like, God, help me. Please provide. I don't know what I'm going to do. This is the big day. I told him this was going to be the big thing. And right then, a mother comes in, and I go, do you have, oh, my gosh, do you have any crackers or something? And she goes, "Uh, yeah. I mean, she pulls out her diaper bag, and she's got some goldfish. (laughs) I'm like, okay, I'll take them, I'll take them. A few seconds later, the husband walks in. Yeah, what's going on? What's going on? I go, man, do you have any grape juice or, I mean, shoot, you got any wine? I mean, I don't care at this point. He goes, no, no, but I got some Gatorade in my car. I'm like, get it, get it. And so he goes out and he gets some Gatorade, lemonade Gatorade. And so I rush. I put, like, Gatorade, lemonade. I got some, I got some you know, goldfish, kind of crush them up, you know what I mean? <laughs> This is this happened, okay? And and I and I just prayed and blessed them in the name of Jesus. <sighs> and it worked. And I tell you this story because in in a nutshell, the power is never in the earthly elements, it's in the presence of Jesus being present in the experience when we take communion. Can I have an amen out there? Which leads me to my final view, which is known as the dynamic view, okay? The dynamic view is that Christ is spiritually present through the Holy Spirit. This was introduced by Calvin. I don't consider myself a Calvinist per se, but I do like this particular point of view on this. Um, a lot of uh, uh, Presbyterian churches, a lot of non-denominational churches have adopted this, but they, they basically believe that, that while you're taking it, uh, I think it's a really there's a disposition that we believe the very spirit of Jesus is present in that moment. I'm going to unpack that a little bit with some words that we see when we unpack some Greek words. You're going to see why and how this position, um, you know, it has come to be. What do I believe? I actually believe in that view. That's the view that I believe and that we teach here at Connected. It is more than a memorial. 
that it's not just something we look back on. We believe that Christ is present with us within uh, the experience. And so that's my position. You can wrestle that with God. Those are the four different views. I would just say, uh, in a nutshell, let's not let these kind of views divide us. Amen. Let nothing divide us, ultimately. Um, there was a great controversy continuing with this conversation, uh, and there was a particular denomination that uh, was known as the Evangelical Covenant Church, and that formed actually out of a controversy over communion. These are the kind of things that churches and religious people have fought over for centuries, this, the, the Holy Spirit, things, you know, things like communion and sacraments. And the context was that in the 1870s, the late 18th century, in Sweden there were a group of people that... Uh, Lutheran believers that were coming together in small groups, but it was kind of growing. And they basically, out of hunger for God, wanted to participate in the Lord's Supper more regularly. The Bible didn't say you had to do it all the time, but whenever you did do it, remember me. But it was a good thing to do it, you know, still. And you could do it with whatever frequency you want. It can be good for you, and I'll reference some people who did that. And so they wanted to do it weekly, but the problem was there were not enough Lutheran ministers to administer and consecrate communion. And so they said, we want to do it, and the ordained you know, uh, ministers weren't available. And they said, wait a second, why can't we do it? Where is it written in Scripture? And they just said, "That's the, the, the denomination came back and said, it's a tradition of the church. You can't do it. It's not okay. It's forbidden. And they decided to break away from that denomination, uh, born out of, number one, hunger for God, and number two, to commune with him. And, and they decided to break away from this tradition and exalt the absolutes of Scripture above the absolutes of tradition. Did you get that with me, everybody? And so many get upset sometimes when, you, when they come to church, especially maybe a church like this, and there could be, like a lot of times, I'm not administering the elements. We empower people. We empower leadership. And we, we believe that you know, a small group leader, we believe that a team leader, we believe that a lay leader can administer. We believe you can do it in your homes. We believe we can, you can do it by yourself in your devotional life. Uh, basically, anybody that can handle the scriptures responsibly and apply them to their heart can administer communion. Is everybody with me? And, and, and over that, what we're saying is that the Bible is the absolute standard for these types of question of worship and application. So let's go back. Does everybody get something out of that? So that's kind of just like some common views, uh, some questions being answered, okay? And so we're going to go back to the context where Jesus actually serves communion himself. This is known as the first communion and the last supper simultaneously. So in the Passion Week, the Last Supper is the First Communion. And Jesus basically uh, is having a Passover meal with them. And the Passover meal, if you want to study on your own, is taken from Exodus 12, uh, Numbers chapter 9. I'm just going to highlight some text from there if you want to study. And I encourage you to do so, especially you note takers. But the context of the, of the Passover meal in particular, there's so many things we could say about it. But it's a story of the Israelites who are in bondage to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is so frustrated with the multiplication of these people that he decides to kill all the firstborn. And God basically says to the Pharaoh, in, in so many words, no way, Jose, I'm going to reverse that curse on you. And so all of your firstborn are the ones that are going to suffer, not the firstborn of my people and my, my own. And so God reveals kind of a plan to his own people and basically tells the Israelites, go and get an innocent, spotless, 
um, lamb or you, and I want you to sacrifice it unto me. Mix the blood of that lamb and mix it with hyssop and, and put it on the lentil of the doors and the doorposts. And so when you would put that blood on the, the door and the doorposts, it would, in a little bit of time, as the blood would begin to flow, it would create an image of a cross. This was an incredible picture of foreshadowing of, uh, and what would happen, just let me pa pa pause for a second, is because the blood would be upon the doors based on the instructions of God, when the angel of death came over Egypt, it would pass over the people of God and they would be spared or they would be rescued or they would be saved. And anybody that didn't have the blood on them would not be saved. Would not be rescued. This is a concealed, contained truth that we see revealed, unpacked, and explained within the death, uh, sacrifice on the cross of Jesus Christ, the one uh, perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And the Bible refers to Jesus as the once and for all sacrifice. For all. So no sacrifices need to be made after that if we accept the one sacrifice uh, for us. The blood of Jesus, the innocent, perfect Lamb of God. Amen? And so just this amazing picture. And so now you have this cross. And, and, and now you see that the people there were saved by the blood of an innocent Lamb. And it's the same way that we're saved. In 1 John 2, uh, 1 through 2, it says this. It's not in your notes, but it says, My dear children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. He's telling us, hey, don't sin. But if you sin, you have an advocate. Uh, one translation says a substitute. Somebody who will stand in for somebody else. You have a, you have a uh, the big word is, uh, later he says propitiation. You have somebody that will stand in for you, and he is the propitiation for your sins. Not for yours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So, so this, this sacrifice was made by Jesus on your behalf. And if the sacrifice wasn't made, the Bible says there's no forgiveness of sin. The Bible says that in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. So at this Passover meal, Jesus said something that he never said before. He basically talks to his disciples, he talks to his close friends, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. For... The for, for, the, for the healing of your body. And, and then he held up the cup and he said, this is my cup. It's a new covenant and it's for the forgiveness of sins. He never said anything like that before. He'd never done anything like that before. And, and, and he knew what he was going to do. And, and he was basically telling him, I'm getting ready to give myself uh, for you. And, and if you will remember this, it will be important in your life. So I think once we understand communion and what's happening, once we reflect on what's happening, I think there should be kind of three things we begin to practice that we're going to hopefully put into practice today in communion. Here's the first one. Write this down if you're taking notes. Communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, giving thanks, number one, is a time of remembrance. It's a time of looking back and recalling what he has done for you. And the Bible says this, it says, and when your children ask you, he's basically saying remember this because there's going to be a time where you're, 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 you're supposed to pass these things on to your family. You're supposed to pass these on from generation to generation. This experience is so important for relationships, it's so important for revelation, and it's so important for generations. It's incredibly, incredibly important. He says, and when your children ask you what does this ceremony mean, he says, tell them. Everybody say, tell them. Okay. It's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the house of the Israelites in Egypt. And, 
And what happened is, uh, and spared, come on, computer, there we go, and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. This is what we need to remember. God spared us from our sins, from the consequences of our sins. I had this uh, girl that I dated once in high school. I don't know why I'm thinking about this. And she said, she put in her, she put in a note to me, and then later she put it in her yearbook. And she said, the quote was, forget me not. And until this moment, I forgot her. Uh, <laughs> she was like, please don't forget me. I'm like, that was the note she wrote to me. And then she put it in her yearbook, and I remember this connection. And God is really saying in this, in this example, remember me. There's a lot of things for you to remember, but make sure you remember me. I don't know about you, you guys, but as a pastor in this crazy nuts world in which we live, I can sometimes lose my hold on the garment of God. I can sometimes forget really what it's all about. I can be, I can be pulled into the machine of ministry and the machine of works and the machine of doing, and I can just forget the work. Just over there, I had a moment with, with God, and it just gets me emotional thinking about that. His blood was shed for my sins. Wow. You know, it's just, you need that revelation. You need that. That sacrament keeps our memory of what's important intact. And he says, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. So a question you kind of need to ask yourself when you're, when you're in this particular moment is, what has God done in my life? How has God been good to me? That's what this sacrament brings back for you and I. It should make it so special when you reflect and remember what God has done for you. Amen? Number two, it's a time of spiritual nourishment. A time of spiritual nourishment. Rabbi, in verse 31 of John chapter 4, Rabbi, eat something. They were trying to get him to focus on the external, but he said to them, I have food that you know nothing about, but I'm about to teach you something. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. In other words, there's a food that nourishes and supplies, not just for your physical, but for your spiritual. There are a lot of you here, including myself at times, where you can be spiritually emaciated. You've gotten thin. Anybody ever come to you and say, you look really thin. You don't look good right now. You don't look good right now. I think sometimes the Spirit of God can be speaking to you and just saying, you don't look good right now. You look undernourished. You look malnourished spiritually. This sacrament nourishes you spiritually. Can I have an amen from this service? Okay. John Wesley, who is known as an incredible evangelist, evangelized much of the world and really kicked off the Methodist church. He used to receive communion every four or five days because he believed it was spiritual nourishment. He believed it was that that kept him going. It was this participation with the perfect work of Christ. And this word participation, we get this from the scriptures. This, this, there's a word in the Greek, it's called koinonia. It means participation, fellowship, common union with God. Some people have argued in my profession that the most intimate word in the Bible is this word yada. It's when a man is with a wife and a, and a woman is with their husband. But I argue, and many do argue, that the most intimate word in the scriptures is koinonia because it's a participation not with man only, but with God as well. It's this powerful connection, this fellowship, this common union, this sharing. And it may be in that moment that we're the closest to God, this side of heaven, until we're with him physically having and breaking bread with him. Amen? 
And so this word is used often in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 16. It says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation, a koinonia, in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation, a koinonia, in the body of Christ? What do we do here? I think we need to ask, what does God want to do in my life? When we're being spiritually nourished, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. What do you want me to do? What is your will for my life, God? That's a question we ask during this sacrament. What does God want to do in your life? And number three, write this down, a time of anticipation. I'm just going to ask uh, the worship team to come at this particular time. But this is, this is an important moment of, we would say, expectation. Everybody say expectation. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 26, it says, Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, look at this, you proclaim the Lord's death, let's say these words out loud, until he comes. Let's say it again, until he comes. How long do we keep doing this? How long do we anticipate until he comes? So there needs to be within this experience, this communion experience, an anticipation. God wants to do something big in your life. God wants to do something amazing in your life. And, and we do it with a look forward mentality. In fact, that's kind of the question is, what are you looking forward to in the economy of God? See, many of you are facing some big obstacles. Many of you have some trials and, and tribulations in your life. And, and, and I would just encourage you, don't quit. Don't shrink back. Don't give up. Can I have an amen? Instead, anticipate the intervention of God in your life. And I know there's some barriers there, and I know there's some physical challenges, mental and spiritual challenges, but sometimes the enemy would try to convince you you're further away from God when those things are happening, but actually you're closer to God when you're broken and when you're humble before God. The Bible says he's very near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit, amen? And so God wants to be very near to you in a time of communion, but you have to be believing for something, expecting something from God. God. And if I could say this with all kindness, but truth is if you're not believing for something big in your life, then your heart has grown cold. You're malnourished. You're not remembering. And you're certainly not anticipating something good. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20, common scripture, but I'm going to read it from the Amplified. It says, now to him who is able, carry out his purpose and do super abundantly more than all we dare ask or think infinitely beyond our greatest prayers, hopes, or dreams according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. This is what keeps me going. Seeing people believing God to do more, anticipating something that he's going to do, looking forward, not looking behind. Paul said, I, don't, I forget what's behind. I don't, there's nothing good coming out of there. Focusing on your behind. We focus and we look forward. Can I have an amen? amen? And so you need to start believing God. You know, if you're believing God for a husband, believe God for a husband. If you're believing God and anticipating for a new job or for a raise or a change in your work environment or your son or daughter to come back to Jesus or my friend this morning asked me to pray that his son would be delivered from, from mental bondage and a suicide spirit. You pray for those things and anticipate. And it's in these times of communion that those things happen. Can I have an amen? amen. The Jews had a tradition at Passover 
that I think is cool and we could adapt. They used to, at the tra this tradition, they would always look forward uh, in this moment and they would say um, to uh, the people around them, when they would take the cup, they would say, next time in Jerusalem. That would be like their final confession. And they couldn't go to Jerusalem. That was like the apex of, of, of you know, where the Passover could be experienced, the holy city, because many of them didn't have the resources or the means. And so they just hoped at some point in their life, just once, they could go to the holy city. And so they'd say, next time in Jerusalem. But I think when we, when we take communion today, and we'll do this in just a couple of minutes, I think we could say, next time with Christ. Because there's going to be a day, and we get to practice today, that we're going to have a meal with the physical representation of Jesus. He, we're going to be at a table with Jesus Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. But until then, until, until then with Christ, we anticipate and we believe and we look forward to that. Is everybody with me there? Okay? So one day it's going to be the first one ever with Jesus himself, just like it was for the disciples at the Last Supper. It was the first communion with them. We're going to have a first communion one day with Jesus himself, and it's going to be amazing. Now, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to put your notes away. I want to pray for you. We're going to transition in just a minute. Be very still. This is not a time for leaders to move yet, except for the communion team. But this, this is something the Holy Spirit said to me last night, because I really want to help people who haven't made that initial connection with God. But he said, before they can eat with Jesus, they have to meet Jesus. Let me say it again. Before you can eat with Jesus, you have to meet with Jesus. In other words, none of you would have somebody over your house that you hadn't met yet for dinner. See, this, this, this experience that we're getting ready to go into is very intimate. It's very personal. And, and, and while we have an open table, it's just not wisdom. And nobody really would feel comfortable having that opportunity with the presence of Jesus until we knew the person of Jesus. And so if you're here today, in Framingham, if you're here today, maybe for the first time, and you're listening to this message, and you came in, and you guys came in here from somewhere else, and, and you don't feel connected to God. You don't know that you've ever met Jesus personally. I got good news. I want to introduce you to Jesus right now. You can meet him, and in just a few moments, you can eat with him, and he's going to participate with us in communion. And so if you're here today, and you've never asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, what I want to do is I want to lead everybody in prayer together. But those of you that have never done that, say this prayer with me. Join in with others. They're going to join in with you in this confession. Many here have already met Jesus, but I want to make sure you get that chance. We're going to do that together. So would you say this with me, church, and those that you know the Spirit of God is speaking to you here and in Framingham, would you just say this? Say, Jesus, today is the day of salvation for me. I want to meet you. And I thank you that you came from heaven to earth to make a way for us to be connected with God the Father, with the family of God, and secure my eternity and save me and rescue me from sin. Death no longer has a hold on me because of what Jesus did for me. And I receive by grace through faith salvation.